Hi, Steve Addison here for the Movement Podcast. The podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Today we're talking to Justin Long, one of the world's leading researchers into movements that multiply disciples and churches everywhere. I originally got started in missions um, almost by accident. I, uh, when I was graduated from high school, my first job was running the bread route, which I discovered I, I had to get up at 12 o'clock in the morning to run the bread route, and I quickly discovered that was not something that I wanted to do. And after that, I worked on a couple of political campaigns and discovered that was not something I wanted to do. And uh, because one of the political campaigns I worked for was uh, Pat Robertson's campaign in the 80s, I was a very fast typist, um, I ended up applying to CBN, his uh, broadcast ministry, and there was no openings there, but there was openings on a small mission agency that was on the grounds of CBN run by Howard Foltz called Ames. And while I was working there initially, um, one of the things I, I happened into was um, the, Ames was an association of, of um, various agencies. And this was right in the, in the late 80s when um, unreached peoples were really starting to get underway. And uh, Ames would get these requests in from people who said, I want to be a missionary. I want to go to X place. And the way that they would deal with that is they'd go through their filing cabinets and they'd hunt for all the various member agencies that were going to that place. And then they would basically manually type out an answer. And I thought this is extremely inefficient. And I'm a database guy. So I built Ames's first database of uh, agencies and where they were working. Um, and along the way, discovered uh, a significant amount about places where people were working in places where they were not. And that led me into the whole idea of unreached peoples. And um, uh, through a, a, an extraordinary number of events, I, I just came to find that my uh, passion, if you will, was for the unreached and trying to figure out why it was that we were not reaching them. And that led me to the World Christian Encyclopedia uh, after my wife and I got married. And uh, I learned from David Barrett a considerable amount about unevangelized and unreached peoples and exactly why we were not we were not reaching them. And a lot of it had to do with um, uh, deployments and people working among them. And I developed this, this passion for that. But uh, all along, one of the things that David talked about frequently was the population growth rate uh, exceeded the amount of evangelism and discipleship that was presently happening. That was, and he called it the scandal of the unreached. He, he, he constantly referred to it as the church was failing to do its, its duty, its commission, and he called it the scandal of the unreached. And I guess that really, that really marked me, and I kept um, trying to think about you know, what it would take for more workers to be placed amongst the unreached, but also what it would take for the gospel to um, replicate for lack of, to multiply, for lack of a better word, amongst people faster than the population growth rate. Um, and, oh, I, I was involved in a lot of different projects over the years, but finally, uh, in the early 2000s, 
uh, I was, my wife and I and our family were in Southeast Asia and we were working with a, a, a network of, of people and we started hearing these things about, about rapidly multiplying movements, about movements to Christ. And, and they weren't as, you know, well-known or as well-documented to this day, but we started hearing these things and started gathering some case studies here and there about things that were happening. And, and then we came back from Southeast Asia and we migrated into uh, beyond. And that was about the time when we really started collecting these case studies. And slowly but surely, uh, we discovered that there were a lot more of them happening than what most people thought were happening. Um, and by the time uh, that the 2414 initiative got started, we discovered there were, uh, I, I think at the time of that, there was in the triple digits, high triple digits of movements where most people, we were in a meeting and, and most people knew about it, they, about 150. But I had documented, I forget the exact number. It was five, six, seven hundred at that point. Okay. Uh, and what were happening? What sort of um, descriptors or definitions were you using to to say this is what a movement is? Sure. Uh, the the definition that we typically use is it has to be uh, within a uh, within a boundary. So we typically talk about at least within countries and more likely within provinces and within uh, people groups. So sometimes when people report uh, a movement to me, it'll be. Uh, we're working in this city, but more typically it's we're working in this people group. And when they talk about a people group, they often are really referring to uh, what Joshua Project would call a cluster. You know, so somebody will come up to me at a conference and we'll, you know, you've got the big stands of coffee and we'll be standing around the coffee thing and they'll start telling me stories and I'll grab a napkin and I'll be hastily writing, you know, down things. It's typically, Oh, we're working amongst this group, this group, this group, and this group. And they're, and they're all big clusters. They're all big language groups. They're, you know, not down to the the very specific things, but it has to be bounded by some language or, or they'll say, you know, well, you guys, you mission researchers, you're all about people groups, but you know, we, we find cities to be important too. And I'm like, yeah, I find cities to be equally important. Uh, we, we talk either in terms of cities or, or in people groups. Because cities are usually a big mishmash of languages. It's a little bit of a different situation. So they'll tell me about that. Uh, and then, so a, a location or a language, and then it has to be adding, uh, it has to be four generations of church planting and not just uh, A to B to C to D, but four generations and multiple streams so that you get that, that stretching out, that multiplication going. And it has to be adding another generation in a relatively short time frame. So typically what we found is that most movements can take sometimes years hmm. to start. But once they start, they start adding another generation, um, usually every year to 18 months, something along that line. Uh, and that's the kind of growth that we're looking for. That's the, that's the kind of pattern that we, that we are, would like to see. Um, it's not that it always is that speed, uh, but usually it is, especially when the movements are smaller. So they have to be bounded. They have to be four generations in multiple streams and they have to be growing. That's how we define a movement. Okay. And so how many movements are you aware of right now around the world? Something like 1375. Okay. Yeah. Wow. 1375 movements, 4,000 plus teams that are, 
So there's there's about 4,500 or so teams that are trying to start movements. And in that 4,500, about 1,375 have reached what we call uh, level five. They've reached that four generations and they're continuing to grow. And that represents about 79 million believers or about uh, 1% of the entire world population mm-hmm. is in a, a rapidly multiplying movement today. And what... Typically, what parts of the world or people groups are we talking about? Well, you know, it's it's interesting. There's, it used to be that people would say, well, that works. You know, the first movements that we really documented were basically in Southern Asia. And people would say, well, that works in Southern Asia, but it won't work here, wherever here was. And then somebody would get fed up with the status quo and they'd want to see what happened in South Asia happen here. So they'd try it. And lo and behold, it worked there. And then, you know, someplace else, people would say, well, it worked in those two places, but it can't work here. Ours is a different environment. Well, at this point, we've had enough people try it in enough different places that we there are movement teams active on just about every UN region of the world, every every continent, every subregion. There's, um, I think it's it's either Polynesia or Micronesia, I forget which, in the Pacific, where we don't we don't have a, a, a team or engagement yet, but um, but that's about the only one. And in, in most of those regions, uh, there's at least one or two uh, movements that have that have started that, it, you know, in some places they're quite small still. Um, but in, in most of those UN regions, there's at least one or two movements. And in some, there's obviously a huge number of, of movements. So every so UN region. Where are some of the continent. hot spots in, in terms of regions of the world? Right across the 1040 window. Okay. Wow. Yeah. What I have found is that the, the, the darker, the darker the spot in terms of spiritual darkness, the more likely a movement will start there. Uh, it is amongst the spiritually hungry, the, the most radical spiritual seekers, um, the, the, the most oppressed places, uh, the most lacking in good news, that's where you'll find movements just ex- explode once they ignite. You know, movements aren't exactly new. There's, there's been movements throughout history. There's, there's been a number of, you know, some of our modern denominations were born out of rapidly multiplying movements. Uh, but for the modern, the, the current wave, if you will, the earliest I've tracked it back is to the very early 1990s. And as far as I can tell, there were probably only about three or four um, back like 91, 92 kind of era, 93, somewhere in there. Um, But um, there certainly were more than we thought when we thought there were only 150, there were definitely more than we thought then. A lot of these things happened very much under the radar because they are in, in very sensitive places. They are in very in, in places where people don't want to talk about uh, what's going on um, under the radar, so to speak. Um, but at the same time, um, there has been phenomenal growth of movements in the in the past five years or so, and it's largely because the existing movements are now training up sending out workers to start new movements in nearby peoples. So the, some of the most effective movement starters, as you might imagine, are the people who were spiritually born and raised up 
by these by these movements. They don't, they really don't have to unlearn a lot of the things that a Westerner would have to unlearn in order to start something new. This is just the way it's always been done. This is the way they always mm-hmm. do it. And and um, so that has led to a, an explosion of new workers being sent out that are not part of any existing Western mission structure and are often very much outside uh, the normal, um, I mean, they don't write articles for IBMR or Mission Frontiers. They, they, they're, they, they don't show up in, in, you know, prayer inserts and bulletin inserts in, in Western churches. They, they don't have videos and, you know, what have you. So um, they're largely unseen. What? Um, the ones that are happening in the Western countries are really deep under the radar because they just don't want the attention either from the traditional church or from uh, well-meaning people who 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 want to bring in money and and workers and and things like that. They they want to keep it as a as a as a movement the way that they you know that they've been trained. So they're often very unlikely to want to talk about the fact that, that they're that they're doing something or that they're seeing fruit. But yeah, there is some fruit that's happening. Also there's a fair number of uh a fair amount of engagement of uh what we would call diaspora peoples hmm. that are in Western environments as well that's that's seen some fruit too. And um, yeah, a lot of the movements that are presently happening um, have been developing now for five, ten, sometimes as long as twenty years. Honestly, mm-hmm. under under the uh, without really being noticed, a lot of the Western work is fairly new, less than five years old. So uh, um, my general theory is, yeah, let's give it another five years, and and we'll see we'll see what dynamic has emerged out of that. Um, yeah. I like you, I celebrate what's presently happening, um, but I'm. I guess when I run into that, I think, well, we're we're kind of in the long haul. People want things to happen, you know, within the, within a year or within a few months, but that's not the way that it typically works. And we're in it for the long haul. We'll see what happens. I think that the first and the foremost characteristic that we always see in these kinds of movements is, of course, extraordinary prayer um, and a reliance on scripture on seeing what's in scripture, obeying what's in scripture, sharing with others around you and making disciples. Um, that it's, it sounds very rudimentary, but I, I think really what happens is in the, in the traditional Western church, the model is let's invite our neighbors to a professionally done church service in a building with great worship and great preaching, and they'll want to come back to the professionally done service with great music and, you know, great teaching. And that's okay, except that, that, that you, it's limited by the number of people that you can have in the church building. And it's limited by the number of people that want to come to the church building. Right. Um, with the movement, you really flip it on its head and you um, focus on making um the typical person, not the not the professional, but the typical lay person in the pew, you, you focus on making them into people who are the ones sharing and the ones who are who are making disciples. Um, and so you have to keep that it, that has to be kept very simple. That has to be kept so easy that anyone can do it. And yet so tied 
to scripture that there's always an easy standard to come back to whenever you have a question. So uh, for one thing uh, with these movements, you know, we, we generally don't use uh, like with the movements that, that beyond the agency I'm with, that we're with, we, we generally don't use special courses. We don't use special Bible studies that people have written. We don't use special curriculum. It's all centered around uh, basic scripture. Um, and it, it's built around, you go to the scriptures for, for the, the stories you're going to share and the questions you want answered. And, and if you ever run into a question that you don't know how to answer, your, your first question is not to talk to the, the outsider or the Westerner or whoever to find out the answer. The first question is you go to the scripture and say, what does scripture tell us about this question? You know, how do we, how do we obey that? And maintaining that simplicity and the focus being on listen to scripture, listen to the spirit, obey, share, and teach them to do the same thing um, is really is really key to movements continuing to grow. The the other thing that I would say is that you have to have uh, every every movement has coaching relationships of some kind, um, and obviously that's a scriptural principle. You know, Paul Paul to Timothy to you know uh, what you heard from me, you pass on to others. Um, but maintaining those coaching relationships is critical uh, to, to maintaining a movement's scalability. Uh, and beyond, one of the things that we talk about doing is coaching circles. So for example, all of our workers and all of the people that they are related to and all the people that they are related to, we're all in coaching circles. And each circle is facilitated by somebody who's just a few steps further on than you are in your journey and that facilitator is also in a coaching circle with people who are a few steps further along than them. So that there's always a, there's always a chain of encouragement and accountability and prayer. And if you can't figure something out and your coach can't figure something out, then they have somebody to take it to. Um, and ha having that network of relationships is incredibly important to, to keeping a movement scalable where you're continuing to, to, move out into larger and larger numbers. What about funding? Yeah, that's a really difficult, that's a really difficult animal. And I, I'm so grateful that it's not my animal. Um, you know, what, what patterns do you see? Sure. Yeah. From movements that are getting to that fourth, multiple streams of fourth generation. Well, how do right. they use money? Well, one of the things that we've generally learned over time and generally found over time is that money interjected into relationships can be a real killer, um, especially when it comes in the form of salaries. Once you start paying somebody a salary to do something, uh, then if the money ever goes away, they stop. They, they're tempted to stop doing it because they're no longer getting the salary for it. So it's a, it's a real challenge. On the other hand, you have to remember that the worker is worthy of their hire and, you know, people have to eat. Um, and beyond that, you occasionally find instances where training is important, where gathering together and cross-pollinating lessons learned is important. Uh, there are some tools we found that have been very, very helpful, like, um, you know, MP3 media players, and especially in a reality-based cultures. 
where people can have like the, the Bible stories recorded in their language on, a, on an MP3 player. Um, there's lots of different things along that line where uh, having some funding is helpful. So I think most movements, generally speaking, um, would avoid uh, anything that smacks of paying salaries to people. Um, and certainly if there is any income for churches, it needs to be local and not coming from outside. Uh, but that said, uh, there are times when um, some agencies will try to help to find funding for either projects or, you know, certain things like, um, like we've done Bibles, of course, and we've, we've even done, you know, bicycles for workers that help them get to places more easily when they're doing church planning activities. And uh, there's been some money raised for media players and things along that line, but they're, they're more one shot. Um, let's, how can we amplify the work of a movement by helping to provide, you know, you have to balance the issue of, you don't want dependency. You don't want unhealthy dependency, but on the other hand, you know, Paul gathered uh, gifts for churches that were in the middle of famine. Um, my wife and I were recently reading the, a scripture where Paul said he was going to come and then they were going to give him a gift and send him on his way. And we both looked at each other and said, Paul was really gutsy about, about this, maybe a little more gutsy than I am. Um, so there's there's that tension between those two that that every movement has to sort out on their own mm. and, and figure out how that's how that's going to work. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would characterize most movements as saying the people that are involved in movements have an apostolic passion and calling that I would say verges on the boundaries of desperation. Mm. They are so passionate for the people group that they are called to that in most instances, they're going to be doing this regardless of whether there's money for it or not. They're going to find a way. So what I've generally found is that most movements actually, there's not a lot of money going around these things, but they're doing it anyway. And you, you find the, the insiders and the outsiders. Yes, I, I, I acknowledge, you know, that the, the outsiders, the, the Westerners who are trying to help and trying to, trying to facilitate and trying to coach, they probably do have access to, to more finances, but you know, these, these aren't the, the, the billionaires of the earth. These are, are people who are passionate about this particular country, this particular people group, and they, they're wanting to do everything they possibly can that's healthy and good, but also that's within the scope of their capabilities to help um, to help these people reach the unreached around them. And in a lot of instances, you have to be really pretty innovative because there's just not a whale of a lot of money going around to try to, to, to try to do things. And I think because there's not a lot of money going around, um, they have been led by the spirit and through desperation into things that really don't cost very much, but are uh, infinitely multipliable. You know, we, we don't, we don't film huge. Uh, we don't do huge video campaigns. We don't, we don't, you know, do satellite broadcast. And I'm not saying those things are bad, but 
without the resources for those things, you do what's available to you. And what's available to you is people share, people share the gospel, people make disciples, people um, do the, and teach others to do the same thing because they're desperate that people hear good news. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, um, so most of the people that I encounter really, they don't have a lot access to a lot of money, but they're willing to pray and work right alongside everybody else. There are a fair number of teens, probably a, a large number of teens, even larger than what I'm aware of, who never see a movement start. So, you know, it could be just as simple as um, you've got a team of two or three people and they're placed on the field and they've been working to try to make a movement start. Somebody gets sick or somebody's kid um, has a, I don't know, an accident or, or they, or somebody's parents are ill for one reason or another, not moral failure, not money issues, not any of those kinds of things. Uh, Maybe their passports aren't renewed, maybe whatever. Um, They have to come off the field and they didn't see a movement start. So there's a fair amount of that kind of thing because it takes a long time to start to see movements start. So you see teams, they get there, they they so and so and so, and they don't see a movement start and they come off the field. Okay, that happens. Uh, Once you get to four generations, it's very rare that a movement will, um, I I call it fizzle, implode. I have documented maybe 15 of those out of 1,300 that I've seen actually implode Mm -hmm. like that. Um, Typically, it's not a recent event. Uh, Typically, the implosion, there's been um, one or two instances, I think, where it was moral failure in some of the leadership. Um, there's been more instances where it, it, it was, and this was early on, uh, it, there was unfortunately money, uh, and then the money went away. And so the movement stopped. Um, but in all 15 instances that I'm aware of, uh, those believers, it's not like they went back to being whatever they were before the believers are still there. And in most of the instances, in, in some instances, they, they absorbed into the, into the traditional church that was there, but in, in, in some instances, but in most instances, what happened was the the leaders that were involved in the movement started new movements. So new movements were birthed out of a, like I know of one movement that that failed because money was gone, um, but that movement itself birthed four different movements that started up. In, in they they basically just multiplied it, split and multiplied is, is essentially what they did. Um, and I don't. I'm not saying that that's right or wrong. Uh, that that's just what happened, and so the movements continue. Um, so, in most instances, when you get to four generations, it's it's not actually common for uh, for movements to implode. Now, what does happen quite frequently is a movement will get to the point of what I would call um, like stagnation. They, they will reach a point and they'll stop growing. And the, the typical reason for that is that they reach the natural boundary around them. It might be a political boundary. It might be a linguistic or a cultural boundary. Whatever it is, they've reached that boundary. And you have two choices at that point. You either, you know, basically ossify into a, a, a network that 
functions like a house church, but is basically more like a, a traditional church and that this is the scope of what you have. Or you are able to send workers over that boundary and see new growth and new things start. And there's a, a good number of movements that have done that and many movements that are, are starting to hit that boundary and some that haven't accomplished that. Getting over the cross-cultural boundary can be just as hard for people that are, you know, in the field as it is for Westerners. There, it's not like, you know, people in America, people in Europe find it more difficult and people in Asia and Africa just go over those boundaries all the time. That's not true. There's a, it's difficult to get over that cross-cultural boundary, but that's really what has to happen if the movement's to grow. The natural barrier is typically around 100,000 people in, in most cases it appears to be. Once you start getting up around 100,000, um, you know, tens of thousands upwards toward 100,000, you have to start thinking about how are we going to go to the people next door? And, and that's, a, that's something that is just as challenging for them as it is for us. What sort of people is God looking for as catalysts for movements around the world? Uh, one of the things we talk about is we try never to prejudge the field. We try never to prejudge a person because we just don't know uh, who is going to be a good catalyst and who's not. I will tell you that generally what we look for um, in, in a person who's going to be a, a field worker is someone who's willing to work in relationship with others, someone who's willing to be coached and to coach both, who's willing to pour their heart into other people, um, someone who's willing to both experiment and learn, you know, uh, someone who's a learner, someone who's really willing to obey, uh, to, to do the things that need to be done uh, in order to see fruit grow. And someone who's willing to to count the cost, and pay the pay the inevitable price that will be paid, and deal with the fact that they probably won't get a lot of glory for what's for what's going to happen. You know, at at, at no point um, in a traditional movement is there a lot of glory at any level. Yeah, I mean, you could be the national leader of of a movement, you know, but once you're beyond four generations, the people sort of downline from you, so to speak, they have no idea who you are. And they certainly don't know who the Westerner was that was, that was helping out, you know, and was, and was, and was serving this movement. So you, you got to live with the fact that there's, there's not really going to be a lot of glory in, in, involved in this. And you got to deal with the fact that there's going to be a price to pay. There's going to be a, a challenges and hardships and um, sicknesses and martyrs. And, you know, it, it, you just have to deal cope with that that reality. Um, uh, I'm I would be looking for somebody who's entrepreneurial and has a passion. You know, give me Scotland or I die kind of person. Um, that's really who I who I would I would be looking for. But again, we try not to prejudge the field. You know, some of the best evangelists have been um, young people and and old people who you wouldn't expect would have any uh, ability or reputation. They're, they're too new. They're too young. They're too old. You know, they're, they're, they've got too many kids. They don't have enough kids. They, they're not married. They, they, they're business people. They're not business. We have all sorts of reasons for why somebody can't 
possibly be. And then they turn around and they end up being somebody who brings hundreds of people into the kingdom. It, it's just impossible to really tell. So what sets them apart? Um, most of the people that I've talked to that are catalysts, it's passion for the lost, a willingness to obey and do whatever God is calling them to do, and a high capacity to experiment and learn and try new things. You know, the, 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 one, of, one of the folks that, I, that is in our organization, you know, what they'll tell you is, we just get up in the morning and we pray and we listen and whatever God tells us to do, that's what we do. It's for them. It's just that simple. It's it's just that straightforward. Um, And I think, okay, I should do more of that. If you want to connect with Justin and uh, explore his resources, visit justinlong.org. I'm Steve Addison for the Movements Podcast.